This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, provided for you by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. On August 30th, 2008, best-selling author Coy Barefoot presented A History of the Corner. He is introduced by Tom Falders, the president of the UVA Alumni Association. Uh, Coy Barefoot is the Director of Communications and Alumni Relations at the Sorensen Institute uh, for Political Leadership at the University of Virginia. And most people just know it, know it as the Sorensen Institute. Coy is a Wall Street Journal and Amazon.com best-selling author. His books include Thomas Jefferson on Leadership and, of course, The Corner, A History of Student Life at the University of Virginia. I should say parenthetically, and Coy will say it again, there happen to be a few of those books over on the side table uh, for your purchase as well as his autograph. Um, that particular book won the uh, 2003 Nolly Prize for Outstanding History. He's written and reported for magazines, newspapers around the country, as well as a long list of online, online publications. Coy has also worked as radio, in radio as producer, investigative reporter, and talk show host. In fact, he's the host and producer of Charlottesville right now a public affairs radio program that is broadcast on News Radio 1070 WINA each weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. He speaks frequently for corporations, civics groups and schools, and alumni associations. Uh, Coy is a graduate of the College of William and Mary and a graduate student of the University of Virginia, where he earned his master's degree in anthropology. He lives in Albemarle County with his wife Allison, who's also an academic. She's an archaeologist who teaches at Washington Lee University. And they also live with their two six-year-old twins, which I sure, I'm sure keeps them very busy. So without further ado, let me introduce Coy Barefoot. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You know, if you're going to the game today, this is going to be a long day. So I want to thank you very much for getting up early and coming out to say hello. I really appreciate it. This is, uh, and I also just want to say congratulations for being part of the... Uh, the biggest opening game day in UVA history. Congratulations. <laughs> Going to be a great day. Go Hoos. So I'm often asked, why are you so into UVA history? Like, when did you get the bug? Like, what happened to you? Uh, um, and I can point to one moment, one night, when all of a sudden a light went on and I realized, wow, this is really fascinating stuff. Let me take you back to a very cold November night, 1994, and I'm bartending at the Virginian on the UVA corner. It's very late at night. Many of you will remember, last call is at 1.30. The place is empty, the kitchen has closed down, the lights are on, I'm cleaning the bar. I wanna go home, it's late. It really is like 1.20 in the morning. I'm the only one in the Virginian. This elderly gentleman walks in, all by himself, a long gray coat, and he sort of shuffles down, you know the Virginian, long and narrow. He walks all the way down, you know, down to the bathrooms and sort of turns around and looks around. I thought, oh my gosh, he's lost. He's looking around. Then he walks back to the bar and pulls off his coat. He sits down. He orders a draft beer. He's very quiet. I'm sort of cleaning up. And then he leans over his beer and he, and he half whispers to me, he says, you know, I used to spend a lot of time in here when I was a student at the university in the 1920s. I said, the 20s? My gosh, how old are you? <laughs> Couldn't believe it. So he starts telling me these stories. And we sat there till 2.30 in the morning. He tells me these fantastic stories of what it was like to actually walk on the corner 
in the 1920s. And what you saw and the places that were there and all about the kitchen where they would go for waffles when the parties were over. And the, uh, they were a little uh, inebriated and it was time for a waffle at four in the morning. <laughs> he told me about Beta the dog, uh, Tim the corner panhandler who called everybody Larson and said, shoot me out, Larson. Uh, great stories. And I started jotting them down on a napkin. And I went home that night with my pockets full of napkins with stories written down on them. And those stories, seven, eight years later, turned into this. Because I got the bug. And I would go from one person to the next. And it was almost like a network marketing company. I'd be like, can you recommend five people that I should talk to? And I should definitely sit down and get their stories. Um, and I was so honored. I mean, it was a journey of, I had the, it was the most, one of the most memorable times of my life. I had such an opportunity just to meet these incredible people and get their stories down. Um, many of whom shortly before they passed away. Uh, I did the last interview with uh, President Shannon at his home over on Pantops uh, just a couple of months before he died. And uh, one of my most memorable times was actually sitting down in Sloan's with Bob Englander and Howard Goodwin and Gus Heilman. And there's some people in this room who know who, who those people are. And that was um, a tremendous honor. To this day, that was a, a great honor for me. So when I handed the text of this book in to the publisher, this is a little secret. The actual title was The Corner, A History of University, Virginia. I told him, I said, you know, the, many people don't know that the university was a, a separate place. It wasn't Charlottesville. It was a separate village, removed, separate from Charlottesville. It had its own train station. It had its own post office. It had its own grocery stores, its own beauty salons, its own uh, places to get grog. Um, you didn't have to go down into Charlottesville if you didn't want to. And the people who lived here would be very quick to tell you, oh, no, 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 we don't live in Charlottesville. Oh, no, we live in university. There's a difference. So lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, he actually changed the title of the book to A History of Student Life at the University of Virginia, which in retrospect was a great idea. Um, and he told me, he said, I can't put A History of University, comma, Virginia on the cover. Everyone will think it's a mistake. Everyone will think it should have been University of Virginia, and it was a typo. So anyway, this truly is a, a history of this village. When Thomas Jefferson, he founded much more than just a school. It was a village that grew up around the school and uh, from day one. So uh, this book really is a history of this place. Um, I actually don't have a lot of time this morning. So I'm going to sort of give you an abbreviated version and I'm going to, in some places, move a little quickly through some of these slides, only because I'm trying to get to some of the, uh, the really cool slides uh, of the corner. Um, and I'll be really quick. This, of course, is Jefferson's first vision for what the university would look like. Many people don't realize this. There were going to be three long sides, not two long sides with a building in the middle. That's what he wanted to do. But he's a pragmatist. Ultimately, as an architect, as a farmer, as a politician, who was very much of a pragmatist. Hey, let's just make this work. How are we going to make it work? Um, so the only land they could get was a narrow ridge that falls down on either side. They only had room for two long sides, so he had to squeeze them up together. And it was Benjamin Latrobe, the architect, that said, why don't you put some big building in the middle? That would look pretty cool. So that's where that idea came from. This, of course, is the original plans. This, of course, is the very first sketch of what it would look like. But the rotunda wasn't built until 1826. This was actually drawn from the architect's schematic about this is what it's going to look like. Um, this was what you could get your books bound with. 
You know, back in uh, the 1820s when you bought a book, it was unbound. There was, no, there was no binding. It was just a bunch of pages stacked up. And you also had to cut each page so that you could turn it. So students would take their books down to the university bookstore at the corner and get it bound. And if you had a lot of money, you could get really nice leather bindings with your name on the front. If you wanted something just off the shelf, you'd get that. And that would be your books. Your books would look like that. This is the first drawing that went around the world. And this is what everybody saw. Wow, that's what Mr. Jefferson did over in Virginia. That's really something. This was the first drawing when it was all built. 1868, shortly after the um, Civil War. Anybody know why this is here, this gate? Cows. Cows. They were all over the place. As a matter of fact, if you read the, the minutes of the, the faculty minutes, one of the very, very first entries is the fact that they have a problem with cows. Right when the school opened, March 7th, 1825, what are we going to do about these cows? They're everywhere. 1875, notice the dark dome on the top. 1890, notice the cupola to bring more sunlight. An October morning, 1895. The, f the fire, of course, started in the annex. I'll tell you about that in just a minute, show you where that was. But I remember when I first saw this picture, I thought, wow, people really dressed up to go to fires back in those days. <laughs> I mean, there's not anybody in here who's not dressed to the nines. That's very strange. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, it was Sunday morning. They were all running from church, the whole town. And all the churches emptied out, and everybody ran up to the university. There it is afterwards, total devastation. So much money poured in, literally from around the world, to rebuild Mr. Jefferson's university. They not only rebuilt the rotunda, they had enough money left over because they still needed classroom space. That was the whole reason they built the annex. They, they needed classroom space desperately. Anybody know what they did with that extra money? Cabell Hall. Cabell Hall. The buildings at the end of the lawn were built with money left over from the rebuilding fund from the rotunda. They had enough money to build three big new buildings and close off the south end of the lawn, despite the fact that Mr. Jefferson specifically designed the lawn to open to a view of the mountains. He said, that view to the south will be symbolic of the limitless freedom of the human mind. He wanted the landscape to actually speak to the teachers, to speak to the students, that you are watching your mind expand to the horizon. And perhaps symbolically, they put some buildings there and closed it off because they needed the classroom space. And part of the motivation was the fact that a neighborhood of free blacks and poor whites had grown up at the foot of the lawn. And the faculty, you can read it in the minutes, they were tired of looking at the houses and the chimney smoke and the clothes on the line. And so they just thought that was an unsightly uh, thing that guests at the university had to look at. There is the annex, 1853. Of course, it burned down. The fire started in the attic of the annex where they had all the art supplies, oils, lots of paper. Um, it just went up like a tinderbox immediately. So let me tell you about the building of the annex, 1851. It was all about classroom space. They had so many kids that came through in the 1850s, they needed more classroom space. The population got about 600 kids. It would not get to that point again. The Civil War, of course, devastated the school. It wouldn't get to that point again until the 1890s. It would take that long for the university to recover. Robert Mills, the architect for the annex, said, what we need to do 
is we're going to attach this thing onto the north front of the rotunda. And what we need to do is we need to build up the land there in front of the rotunda because right now it's just sort of a hill with scotch broom, just a, a yellow weed just sort of growing up on the backside of that hill and it's sort of uh, muddy. And we need to build up the land there to provide a solid foundation for what would become the largest public auditorium in the south for decades. So he said, let's build it up. Now, should the earth thus taken out of this area not suffice to make up these terraces? Because you'll notice the terraces, they, they, they're there today. They're still there. You can see the foundation of where the annex sat. It sort of terraces down to University Avenue. He said, uh, let's find some other earth somewhere. Let's find some dirt and just move it over there and throw it down so we can build the foundation for this uh, building. Anybody have any idea where that earth came from? You're exactly right. That's how we create a mad bull. They dug the earth out, they hauled it across the street, they threw it down, they put a building on top of it, and mad bull was born. This is, of course, the annex that they built there on the, on the front, the bridge connecting it that uh, students love telling the story of uh, Professor Eccles who tried to blow up the bridge unsuccessfully. This is the university today. When Jefferson designed the, um, the front of the rotunda, I should say the back of the rotunda, the back door, the, the one that faces University Avenue, this is what it looked like. And of course his reasoning was, we don't have much money, that's the back door, not many people are going to see it, I'm going to put my money on the front. Pragmatist. I mean, you've been to Monticello, have you seen the stairs? They look like they're in a closet. I mean, it's just total functional versus stairs today where people are like, look at my stairs, you know, look at this. There was that concept never came to Jefferson. What a waste of money. It's just to get from one floor to another. This is just the back door. All we need is a door and some steps. But again, there was so much money left over from the rebuilding fund, they sort of changed it a little bit. They spruced it up. And again, you can see the foundation with... Um, land taken out of Mad Bowl to create the, uh, the foundation. Let me take this off. Now I want to go a little quick here. Mule-drawn trolley lines came through, electric streetcars in 1893. The university branch came up to the university in 1912 despite heavy opposition from students. Any idea why the students didn't want the, the trolley car coming up to the university? They didn't want the locals coming up, hanging around the university. <laughs> and there were many editorials in the student newspaper. That's the last thing we need, is the trolley line coming up here to the university. Get all those townies up here walking around. This is behind Cabell Hall, the first steam plant. Here's uh, Memorial Gymnasium. I asked students this, and it's so funny because they never really think about it. Who was the uh, Memorial Gymnasium, Gymnasium a memorial to? First World War, the students who served and died in the First World War, exactly. 1952, same line of sight, and then back to when it was built in the 1920s. By the way, I should tell you, what you're seeing is, is my hope will be my next book. Um, I'm hoping to do a book that will put all of these pictures in there so you can sort of see the before and after. Um, opposite pages. Madison Hall erected in 1905 as a YMCA. Behind it, of course, was the YMCA campus. One of the first, not the first, but one of the first athletic fields at the university. Tennis courts, tracks. People often ask me, when did they build those fraternity houses? 1890s, turn of the 20th century. Before that, they would just sort of, they existed, but they would sort of gather in local um, 
what we would think of today as a bed and breakfast. They would sort of gather at the, the predecessor to hotels and uh, have dinners and invite alumni back. All right, let's talk about the honor system. You know who this is? John A. D. Davis. Very good. What's your name? Lewis Martin. Lewis Martin. I wrote my master's thesis. Wrote his master's thesis on this guy, of course. <laughs> Boy. Are we in a room of university alumni or what? Gosh. John A.G. Davis, the professor of law. This is the guy who was shot. And you all know that story, right? The honor system was born because a professor was shot on the lawn during a student uprising, and things were just so bad. And to save the university, the students said, uh, we'll vouch for each other. We'll create an honor system. We won't have any problems like this in the future. Uh, we'll save the day. We'll save the relations between the students and the faculty. And uh, the honor system was born. That's the story that any doe-eyed first year will tell you. And there is some truth to that. A professor was shot. That's about the only truth to that story. <laughs> and I wish I could say that that story was true because it's so cool. Isn't it cool? We were all told it. it it's, it's, it's sexy. I mean, it is a neat story. Wow, there was a murder, and then the phoenix rising from the ashes was the honor system, which is the best place about this, this school. It's that which calls all of us to a higher level. It, it says to each one of us, you know what? You can do better. You should set an example. You should be a person of honor. And, and you know what? We're really not going to tolerate it here in this community if you're not willing to rise to the occasion. It's fantastic. But that's not how it was born. Regrettably, it was born because students were cheating. That's the truth. That's what the historic record tells us, at least. The story of the, uh, of the murder of their professor actually causing the honor system does not appear in the historic record until 1950, with somebody looking back thinking, they must have had something to do with each other. One is 1840, the other one is 1842, but not. So here's the real story. He was shot in November of 1840. Let's go back a few years to see first why he was shot. When Jefferson founded the school, they agreed right from the start that they were going to have a student military company, what we would think of today as, as ROTC. It was seen as a, a good way of uh, building character and getting students outside to get some exercise. And uh, this is a good idea. We're going to do this. So they had what was called a student military company. And the only rules were, there were two. When you come back in the fall, you have to ask permission to reform. You can't just come in and go to the armory and get the guns and start marching. You've got to ask permission from the faculty. Of course, there was no president. Jefferson didn't want a president. He didn't want an administration. Like his view for democracy, the folks who live here should be the ones to run it. So the faculty would run the place, and there would be a chairman of the faculty, but no president. So the faculty were in charge then. Well, everything worked fine until 1836. 1836, the students come back. Oh, by the way, the second rule was, if you're told to put the guns up, you put the guns up immediately. So 1836 comes around, and the students get back to town, and they just get the guns out and start marching. They didn't have permission. And the faculty just sort of politely said, hey, you remember the rules for the student military company? You should have asked us permission before you did that. I mean, go ahead, but next time, remember, there's a rule for this. So the student leader of the military company comes before the faculty and says, 
you know what? Uh, he was sort of a, he didn't like being reminded that he had broke a rule. So he goes before the faculty and he says, basically, screw you. We're going to do what we want to do. We're the student military company. We want to go get the guns and march when we want to march. That's what we're going to do. So we henceforth exist under our own rules. And there were about half of the student body then in the student military company. So the faculty did exactly what I would have done. Oh, okay. Well, then you're all expelled. Go home. You don't want to play by the rules of this community, then just go home. Put the guns up and go home. So the reaction in 1836 by the student military company was not to obey the rules. They took over the school. Lots of gunfire, firecrackers, breaking windows, mayhem for three days straight. Total mayhem. Drinking. Unbelievable. There's a great account by one of the, um, the students' children writing, basically saying, we can't leave our homes, we can't sleep, they're up all night, they put a flag up on the rotunda and they're shooting at the flag, they're just going crazy. They put a tin horn through one of the windows and were blowing on it all night to keep the faculty awake. They had to bring in the equivalent of the National Guard to take the school back from these students. And they readmitted them on a case-by-case -case basis that took months. One child, one student at a time, should you stay. So that was the famous military rebellion of 1836. Well, 1837 rolls around, November, the same weekend. And what are all those students saying to the younger new students? Oh, man, you should have been here last year. <laughs> we had such a good time. We went cr Oh, man, we took over the school, and we shot out the windows. It was fun. We had a great time. And what did the new students say? Let's do it again. <laughs> so they had a celebratory anniversary riot on the same night in 1837. 1838 rolls around. Oh, man, you should have been here two years ago. You should have been here last year. Let's do it again. 1838, 1839. And you know, because you've all been at this place, each year it gets a little wilder because the stories get a little bigger. And the first years and the new guys try to outdo the guys from last year. 1840, during that celebratory anniversary riot, that's when this professor was shot. He came outside, oh gosh, they're doing this riot again. Oh, but it's November 12th, goodness gracious. He walks outside of his house, Pavilion 10, and he steps out here on the front porch basically to say, go back to your rooms, enough is enough, come on, you do this every year, go to bed. One of the students, Joseph Sims from Georgia, was seen, he had a mask, and somebody said, hey, look out, there's, Professor Davis just came out. And so all the students scattered except him. And he was firing blanks from his pistol. But he was said, it was said that they saw him put a ball in the gun, and he walked down the arcade towards Pavilion 10, slamming the gun against the wall as he went to load the, the ball. And he walked up to Professor Davis. Professor Davis turned around, tried to take his mask off. If he takes his mask off, he could probably be expelled once he knows who he is. By the way, that's why they put their names on their door. Because in riots, students would run back into their room. They want to say who was who. Who are you? Which room? Who are you going in there? Tried to take his mask off. The kid shot him in the stomach, and he bled to death. He died the next morning. Awful.
Horrible, horrible thing. Fast forward two years. Professor Davis was succeeded on the faculty by Henry St. George Tucker. At a meeting on July 4th, 1842, in reaction to repeated stories of student cheating, Henry St. George Tucker said, you know what, why don't we, uh, you know, we, they, they, they agree to abide by all the rules when they come in. It's called the matriculation pledge. They agree that they're not going to violate any of the rules or cheat when they get here. But we should appeal, make a direct appeal on every assignment to their honor. So why don't we just have them attach something to each thing saying, I didn't cheat. That's July 4th, 1842, an afternoon faculty meeting. There is no mention of the murder of Professor Davis two years before. The only connection is the fact that Professor Davis was succeeded on the faculty by the guy who made the suggestion, hey, why don't we have a pledge to stop this cheating? Now, there are some people here at the university who, who um, they don't really like the fact that I dug this up. They like that story. I like that story. That's what I was told. That's a cool story. Yeah. Well, here's the smoking gun, no pun, in, no pun intended. In 1819, when the centennial history of the university was written, the 100-year history, when somebody sat down and said, this is the history of this place, when he wrote about the origins of the honor system, he doesn't even make any mention of the murder of Professor Davis. It's not even there anywhere. In fact, he says, everyone today believes that the honor system was created because we were copying William and Mary, who had an honor system. Well, that's not true. We were just trying to stop cheating. It's right there. There's also a talk by a professor in 1901 where he's going around to other schools and he talks about the honor system. And he says the origin of the honor system, no mention of the murder of Professor Davis, is, has everything to do with following Jefferson's ideals for creating an honorable member of the society. So that's the origins of the University of Virginia honor system. That's Henry Martin, the bell ringer at the university. He was born a slave at Monticello, and he was sold to help pay off Jefferson's debts. He ended up working at the university, where he rang the bell every hour on the hour from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. for over 50 years. I mean, you want to talk about somebody who was the heart of this community? And per Jefferson's design, you could hear the bell ringing in Charlottesville. He wanted the university to be the timepiece for, for Central Virginia. Amazing, amazing guy. Now, during my research, I managed to dig up some pictures that had never been published before. And this picture you're about to see, I literally found in a shoebox in a woman's attic. And she said, oh yeah, I forgot I had that. Here's Henry Martin hanging out with some students drinking behind West Range <laughs> in 1902. Isn't that fantastic? Just having a good time. So, let's talk about the origins of the Seven Society. And um, I should say, people often ask me, are you going to, you know, you're going to publish the members, you're going to tell people who they are. I don't know who is a Seven Society member. I've interviewed some, but only, I only knew after they died, that, oh, he was a member, I didn't know that. Um, but I do have what, to my knowledge, is the only complete list of everyone who has passed away and been um, identified as a member of the Seven Society. Um, and it was actually... Most of that list was given to me by Professor Frank Finger, who passed away, uh, who used to ring the bells, play the carolin, 
when a member of the Seventh Society passed away. And he would go up, and every time he ran the Carolyn, he would write down who it was. And he kept a list for decades. And before he passed away, he gave me that list. And um, I can tell you, I have no intention and will never publish that list. Um, out of concern that the wrong person's going to get it and try to look for patterns, which I have never done. And um, so it's, it's actually literally locked away. Um, and I have no intention of ever publishing it. But let's talk about how it was born. 1902. The most reliable account has it that there was a, uh, well, it's sort of an intramural baseball team. A bunch of guys who lived on East Range together formed an intramural baseball team, and they named themselves after a team that was then playing in North Carolina that one of them knew about, and they liked the name, Hotfoot. That's the most reliable account. There's another account that says it was formed as a direct result of uh, mimicking a Mardi Gras celebration at UVA. But either way, that same baseball team celebrated Mardi Gras um, that spring in 1902. So this group of, of uh, this Hotfoot Society, here they are in a, in a picture a few years later, um, and I like this picture because it <clears throat> shows the secret Seven Society member, known at the time as the Seven Club. Um, so the Hotfoot Society forms, and here's how the Sevens were born. The Hotfoots, Hot Feet, whatever you want to say, they had a rivalry with the Z's. Formed in 1892, and they sort of said, you know, you guys are so stuck up, putting your Z everywhere. I'm so sick of seeing that. So some members of the Hotfoot Society took to wiping off the tail of the Z's. And what did that leave? A seven. So it was sort of like, what is this mysterious seven that's appearing on grounds? <laughs> and the first tailless Z appeared on the walls of the rotunda on Wednesday, April 12th, 1905. That's when they were born. Wednesday, April 12th, 1905. But it was a direct result. It was just an anti-Z group more than it was a seven group. It was, uh, we don't like you guys. So that's how they were born, the Hotfoot Society. And they instantly started having these huge parties on East Range, um, disrupting patients down at the new hospital down the hill. They were often told, you guys got to tone it down. You're too loud. Your parties are too raucous. Um, but they did just the opposite. It got worse and worse and worse until finally President Alderman said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to disband you and possibly expel you if you guys don't disband yourself. So they said, okay. And they voluntarily, in 1912, 10 years after they were formed, they voluntarily disbanded themselves. <clears throat> Anybody remember what happens next? Do we have any imps in the room? In 1913, the Imp Society was born. The former Hot Feet members, Hot Foot members, decided, well, we'll dissolve that group, but we're going to start another one. And we'll call ourselves the Imp Society. Incarnate memories prevail in memory of the famous Hot Foot Society. And they actually made that decision at the bedside of uh, Hot Foot member Lewis Crenshaw, who I'll show you in a minute. If there's ever a plaque that needs to be at this university or something in somebody's honor, it's Lewis Crenshaw, without a doubt. Founding Hotfoot member, he's the guy who really created the Seven Society that we know of, and he's the guy who created alumni reunions. So in 1913, he's down at the university hospital. A lot of his friends, for an appendectomy, a lot of his friends come down. There's 10 of them, and they say, Lewis, what are we going to do? We don't have the Hotfoot anymore. Well, let's form the Imp Society. Incarnate memories prevail, and what we'll do is we'll sleep 
The hot feet will sleep until with proper authorization and at the proper time will wake up and the hot feet, the hot foot society will be reborn out of the imps who will carry our legacy into the future until the right time when we come back. So the imp society made its first appearance on grounds on a Saturday, February 1st, 1913. Wouldn't it be so cool if on February 1st, 2013, the hot foot society woke up? I, I would be in such awe. That would be so cool. And so if you know any imps, tell them the history. I think it would be so neat if all of a sudden the imps were gone, they did their job, they kept it alive, and now the hot feet are awake. Um, you notice in this picture of the hot foot society, but they can't be as raucous and as crazy as these guys were, or they'll have to disband again. So um, you notice in this picture, you see the guy in the middle? That's a cadaver. It, very common at the time for the medical students to go get cadavers out of the, uh, the anatomical theater and have pictures taken for the yearbook. Yeah, sort of creepy. Here he is, Lewis Crenshaw, the first big alumni reunions, 1913. He's the guy who single-handedly said, we should all go back. Let's get different classes to go back. And the, the past few classes went back. They all wore the same uniforms. Some of them were dressed as prisoners, and some of them were dressed as sailors. And they had a big tent. If you, refer, if you hear alumni hall referring to the big tent, that was born at this very first 1913, because he set up a big tent. And they said, we'll see you at the big tent. Um, and this is the guy that put it all together. He was also the guy that on the 10th anniversary of the founding of the Hotfoot Society, oh, I'm sorry, on the 10th anniversary, oh, it was on Monday, April 12th, exactly 10 years to the day, and I don't even know if this was intentional. It was 10 years to the day that that first tailless Z had appeared on the wall of the rotunda. Monday, April 12, 1915, when President Alderman received a check for $500. Actually, I think it was five $100 bills from the Seven Society, celebrating their 10th anniversary and to create a needy fund for students. That's when the Seven Society that we all know was born. This group that secretly donates money to the university, pays for certain things that will just help this community, and never once never once asking for any kind of recognition or any kind of thanks. It's beautiful. Their anniversary, their 100th anniversary, came and went without so much as a whisper in 2005. And I was sort of watching to see if something was going to happen. Nothing. And you know what? I think it would have been inappropriate if it was, because the part of the MO is we don't want thanks. Just let us do what we do. It's really beautiful. This is the guy that created it. He did it in 1915. He's the one that sent the check. And there's, there's no statue. I, I don't know of anything in his name in his honor, but this, oh, I'm sorry, there is. <laughs> there's a plaque. Good. <laughs> Out in the patio here. Wonderful. Yeah. He's the guy. And we'll try to speed up here. We need to get down to the corner, but everybody knows where this is? This is the anatomical theater, the building designed by Mr. Jefferson where the med students would work. There it is. Hard to imagine because it would never happen today. Hard to imagine that it was actually torn down in 1938. That's where it was. And they tore it down because they were building this building, the new library, and they thought it just made, it was sort of marred the view of the library, got in the way. Let's get that old building out of here. We would never do that today. This is the other medical building that's been raised, the university dispensary. 
down across from uh, near the George Rogers Clark statue. And if you walk down there today, see these steps here? You can still see those. There they are right there. A little hard to see, but that's the university dispensary. That's where medical students learned uh, outpatient surgery, um, pharmacy, that kind of thing. West Range Road. This is how it started. Let me say that again. This is how it started. And this is how it ended. Can we see that contrast again? Springtime in Charlottesville. Easter's. Boom. 1976, and I know there's people in this room who were probably there, but 1976 was the height of the party. That's when the party was its biggest. They had 15,000 people in Mad Bowl. Can you imagine that? 15,000 people. Whew. Uh, of course, for decades, for 100 years, it was just a, a big party, nice dancing, a, a, drinking too, of course, they party too, but nothing like what it became in 76. Yeah, beginning and the end. And, and it was basically just the university folks sitting down with the county folks, sitting down with the city folks saying, you know what, we have a problem. <laughs> Somebody's going to get hurt, and it's gotten too big. So we have to figure out. So what they did is the plan was, uh, uh, what we'll do is we'll just, we can't just cancel it. There'll be mayhem. We'll scale it back every year, and we'll sort of move it around. So in 77, you weren't allowed to be in Mad Bowl. The party was out on Alderman Road. And then the next year, when Alderman Road, it was at the Colonnades. So it, it actually died in the Colonnades because they just kept trying to make it as difficult as they could to have this party. There's the last t-shirt, 1982, Skip Castro in the States. There's still a big springtime party, though. There's been a big springtime party at University of Virginia you know, Easter's or not. In 1983 to the mid-90s, anybody here remember Van Riper's? That's where I used to go. Saw a little group there called Dave Matthews Band. Wow, they're pretty good. <laughs> that, was, that also got too big. And then all of a sudden, students discovered Foxfield. And that now takes its place as the big springtime party at the university. Let's go down to the corner really quick here. You can looking up from the corner up at the rotunda at the annex there that burned down in 1895. This is Temperance Hall, the first student hangout at the corner. And it's so ironic. The student temperance movement was so popular in the 19th century. I mean, think about it. It was like really cool to be part of the temperance movement. And it got so popular, and their dues, they had such a collection of dues, they had enough money to build a building. And they built it, built it down at the corner at the entrance to the university, which, by the way, I should say, we call the corner beginning in 1902. That's the first time you see the, um, that you see it in the historic record. Up until then, you'd see down by the railroad crossing or at the entrance gate. But that's where the entrance to the school grounds met the main road to town, and it formed a corner. And when the Virginian was opened in 1923, the Virginian restaurant, the first ad actually says, conveniently located near the university, above the corner. In the 1920s, the Virginian wasn't on the corner. It was above the corner. And the buildings on the other side of the railroad tracks were called below the corner. So right there in front of the big Anderson Brothers building, that was the corner of the corner. By the mid-1930s, those five city blocks collectively became known as the corner. 
So here's Temperance Hall. So funny to think that students originally went down to the corner to sit together and talk about how they weren't going to drink. <laughs> little different from today. Just a little different. Here's the same scene today. That's where Temperance Hall sat, right where the gates are. Gates, of course, built in 1913. They built this building to replace Temperance Hall in 1913. That was the first strip mall in the South, basically. It had six, five or six different storefronts uh, for different businesses. <clears throat> then they moved it when the university uh, expanded, the medical school expanded. They picked this up and pushed it down by the railroad tracks. And you can see they're moving it down. You can see the columns are still over here as they're pushing it down. The corner of the corner, the Senf Memorial Gates, uh, donated by Mrs. Charles Senf in honor of her husband who had passed away and also in honor of the honor system. Which, by the way, I didn't say before, but, <clears throat> and I've written about this for the University Magazine, there really is an evolution from what was just a pledge to a code to a system of some would say a bureaucratic system of participation and enforcement as they try to grapple with how do we make this pledge work and this code survive in this system that we have today. It's very different, very different. There wasn't a system when there was just a pledge. There was just a few guys, just a few dozen people. So it, it is challenging. And uh, that conversation that students participate in, how do we keep this alive? I think has become as much a part of the tradition of the honor system as the pledge itself. And so participating in that conversation, Jefferson would love that, that these young people are participating in a conversation. How do we keep an honor system alive? How do we make that work? Wow, what a, what a great thing to participate in, to engage in that conversation. What great preparation for you to enter a free society and, and think about questions like, how do we, make, how do we keep freedom alive? How do we make freedom work? I mean, talk about preparing somebody. So people often say, oh, the poor honor system is dead, it's dying, it's nothing like it used to be. Yeah, but they're still learning a lot of great stuff when it comes to the honor system. Plus, I will say this very emphatically, I think the media is there every time the honor system fails, or somebody fails it, more properly put. They're there with the headlines of this basketball player who stole this from a store or whatever, and they put a big spotlight on that, but they're never there. The many thousands upon thousands of times that the honor system has worked perfectly with no fanfare and no recognition by a student who signed his or her name and didn't cheat and meant it when they signed their name. The press is never there for that. This is the old corner of the corner. Here's the Anderson Brothers building. The old Shep drugstore, Anderson Brothers building. Here's what it looked like standing in the same spot back in the 19th century. There they are, the brothers, Richard and John. Next time you go in, um, well, see, I tell this to students, but I think most people in this room know this. I tell them, next time you go into Little John's, look down on the floor as you're going in. They're like, whoa. Wow, really? Yeah, that was a drugstore. Now, this is one of my favorite before and after scenes, only because I don't see how women actually, well, how would, those things must have been so uncomfortable. 
on a hot day, gosh, that's looking down at the corner. You can see Temperance Hall over here. The, uh, actually, that was a grocery store then and the bookstore. Looking down towards the, uh, the university entrance building, they call it. Circa 1905. This is the old corner. I call it the old corner. As a matter of fact, in the historic record, they referred to it as the time as the old corner. And then they tore down. Most of these buildings are all gone except for the Anderson Brothers building. And then they rebuilt it. There's the new corner. Chancellor's Building, 1914. I'm going to move a little quickly because I know we want to get to questions. I don't want to keep you here all day. Sam Chancellor's Drugstore, which had great chicken salad sandwiches, I'm told. <laughs> uh, now a Mexican place. Here's the uh, famous railroad trestle. So I'll tell you the story of this railroad trestle. That was actually a graded crossing originally. Everybody knows what a graded crossing is, where the road goes over the railroad tracks? Picture that for a minute in your head. This is a tunnel that they dug. The road went over the railroad tracks originally. The turn of the 20th century, well, what students would do when the train slowed down and going around the corner on its way down to Charlottesville, they would jump on for free rides to go downtown. <laughs> and one of them fell and died. And so there was this big uproar. What are we going to do? And the solution was we got to figure out a way to separate pedestrians from the trains. Just we, need to make, we need to do something. So they dug it out, and they created this tunnel, which Nobody's really liked ever since it was built. Um, and they only made it tall enough for the uh, trolley cars to get through. They didn't anticipate in later years what might happen. 1955, 1901, shortly after they built it, you can see the road is only paved to the, um, to the trestle because then the county began. So there was all dirt roads because they didn't have money, enough money. That's what happens today. Anybody ever seen that? Especially with rental trucks. <laughs> Honey, you have a map of where we're going? Bam! Oh, no. Here's a uh, look back through time at traffic on the corner. It has always, always, always been an issue. I mean, you can go back and, and read student editorials in the paper from the 1920s. We recommend that young men with new cars traveling past the corner slow down. So we'll go down the corner with just some before and after pictures. Professor Dunnington's house, where the bank is, was built in 1960. Uh, Starbucks opened in 1998. Of course, for most of its history, it was the home of Stephen, Stephen Shepherds or Ed Mictums after that. And then after that, anybody? Oh, good. Arnett's, exactly. Um, this building was built in 1927. It originally housed a little restaurant called Yanks. And next time you're down on the corner, look up on the side of the building and you'll still see the remnants of the old ad for Yanks. And it boasted the university community's first barbecue machine. Whatever that was, but they had one. <laughs> and the students loved it. Ellywood Avenue, of course, named for this little girl, Ellywood Page, um, who went on to teach generations of Charlottesville kids how to ride and care for horses. This is her mother, Mrs. Ian e. Page, who had a boarding house on that street, and the students named the street after little Ellie, who they would always see out on the street. Most of the businesses at the corner, when you see them, were actually two businesses originally. When you see something like this, you know, see how that has an awning, looks sort of funny, but it's all mincers? That was a separate business, and a lot of you in here remember that. Um, it was originally Collins and Men's Clothing Store, and then, of course, it was Res Romans University Sports Shop, which um, 
If you go in that side of Minster's today, it looks like this. But if you walked in to ask uh, Mr. Roman about restringing your tennis racket, you'd see him sitting back there like that. And I actually, one of my great honors working on this book was to meet him before he passed away. And um, he lived over here on University Village on Old Ivy Road, right towards the top, majestic views of the Blue Ridge, absolutely beautiful. And um, it looked down on where the Faulkner, Faulkner family estate. And he was, uh, he, during the conversation, he actually looked over and he looked down. He said, you know, I never thought I would get to the point in my life where I would look down on Hunter Faulkner. <laughs> nice, nice guy, very nice. And I actually was with Hunter Faulkner, uh, a member of the Seventh Society before he passed away. Funny story how I met him. I'm at the gas station down in Ivy, and I see this old man get out of a car with a license plate that says UVA1. And I'm like, I walk up so naive. Are you an alumnus of the university? <laughs> Hunter Faulkner. Yeah. He said, uh, yeah. What do you want? <laughs> this is Mensers. Here's Mensers on its opening day. Mensers, of course, originally... Uh, uh, Pipe and tobacco shop, thank you. Pipe and tobacco shop. There's Mr. Mincer Sr. with his pipe behind the counter. To his right, our left, is uh, Bobby Mincer, who recently retired a few years ago. I'd had a great conversation with him on my radio show. He told me the whole history of uh, Mincer's on my radio program, and it's podcast. You can check it out, seabillpodcast.com, and you'll hear it. It's a fantastic story, his memories of the corner. Here's at the corner 2007 in Mincer's. Here we are in 1965. The pipes are still there but barely, hanging on. You know, they actually used to have, some of you may remember this, they actually used to have collegiate pipe smoking competitions where they would get guys from different schools, put them on a stage and see who could smoke a pipe the longest. Mr. Mincer was the coach. The Virginian opened in 1923. Here we are in 1974. Anybody in here remember that? I think that's so beautiful. I love that. Even prettier. And this is what, why I'm a historic preservationist. Look at the Art Deco Virginian in the 1930s. Is that not gorgeous? Gosh. Jones's Barbershop, of course, downstairs. Milton Via joined after World War II. He was there cutting hair when President Clinton was retiring. Here's what's now three. This has been a string of different places. Um, but originally, well, for most of its history, we know it as... University Cafeteria, the UNICAF, of course. I actually um, got to talk with Cleve Weber before he passed away, who was the manager and the founder for many years. Um, and he's the one who gave me some of these pictures. This is the student bookstore today. For a long time, it was, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank, Rexall's Drugstore. Um, but the left side of it, the left side of that building, anybody in here been to this place? There you go. The Cavalier. Talk to alumni who were back here in the, the 30s and the 40s, the Cavalier was the corner. The Virginian was for first years. By the way, Virgi uh, first years were not allowed to hang out at the corner until the 1930s. That was a no-no. And then they had such an explosion of a student population in the late 20s that you really couldn't have that rule anymore because there were so many of them. So the, the, the uh, upperclassmen who were called corner kings, they said, okay, you can have the Virginian, but you can't have the Cavalier. This is the Cavalier inside the Cavalier. These pictures actually didn't get into my book. I found these since. Look at those beer cans. That is, that, is, that is the Cavalier. Now, in one picture, this is the history of the corner. It's an old house with a commercial annex on the front of it. 
the house built in the early 1890s and the commercial annex put on the front, which is where the Cavalier was, in 1928. That is a history of the corner, an old residential street that just became commercial. Here's back in the corner parking lot. Nineteen fifty. Whoop! This isn't working. All right. This is. Um, I don't know what these are today. This one just opened recently. Yes, this was Pose. Uh, it was McAdoo's. Before that, it was Pose. Um, before that, it was uh, the Horseshoe Bar. Fred Dove had the Horseshoe Bar there for many years. But going way back, it was the Kitchen. This is where they ate their waffles at three in the morning having a good old time. And the kitchen, there was originally a, a little um, streetcar here, trolley car, that they was a, a little dining car. They put a log cabin facade in front of it to make it look cool. And then later, they built this building, the kitchen annex. And again, this is where Pose is, or McAdoo's. This is going way back. This is before they built the log cabin facade. And that was uh, one of the first real popular eateries on the corner. This is looking down the corner in this same block, College Inn, the old Eljo's location, University Grocery. Eljo's, founded in 1950. Two brothers, Elliot and Joseph. Eljo's. There you go. Elliot and Joseph Hyman brought us Eljo's. They're there on opening day. Two years later, the way they told me the story, well, we had some time on our hands, so we figured why not open a restaurant? The College Inn was born. Elliot and Joseph Hyman, who created Eljo's, also created the College Inn. This is in the College Inn today. It used to look like this when it was Polygruto's clothing store. Then it was a university branch of the Keller and George Bank. Here's looking. Eljo's relocated to Elliewood Avenue in 1985, and very sadly to me at least, it left the corner in 2006. Lloyd's Rexall, 57 to 93. The student bookstore took over after that. And that's what it looks like today as a result of that renovation in 2002. Looking down the corner, we'll go a little fast here. Just have to look at some of the pictures. Satellite ballroom, of course, used to be the University Billiard Parlor. Anybody play pool in the University Billiard Parlor in here? There you go. <laughs> you know, it's funny. When I interview alumni about the history of the university, I, I always, they always bring two things up, the honor system and the pool hall. <laughs> This is what it looks like today, soon to be a CVS, which I have said on my radio program, and a lot of people are disappointed about it. Personally, I have no problem with it. I, th I would love to see a pharmacy on the corner. That is very much a part of the tradition of the UVA corner. There's always been a pharmacy there until recently. We don't have one. And it's, I, I love to see that because I don't want it to be a, a food court. It's always been sort of downtown of this little village of University of Virginia with all sorts of businesses. So, yes, it's a national chain, but the Corners had, had plenty of national chains. Mincer used to be an A&P back in the 20s. So there's a tradition of national chains. There's a tradition of a pharmacy. And you know what? CVS will come and go, just like all of these. So I don't really have a problem with it. Here he is, Carlton Van Leer, the University Billiard Parlor. Richard Lightning Gorey over here to the right, who would rack your balls up. This is uh, Corner Merchants. They were so kind to get out here for me on a very early morning in July of 2000. This is standing in the same scene in 1917, Corner Merchants. Yeah. 
So why don't we end with this, and then we can take questions, because I don't want to keep you here all day. I don't know we got a tailgate to get to. Uh, there was a, uh, a beauty parlor on the corner, and they moved out, and they went up to Anderson Brothers bookstore building on the second floor. They relocated. But for a long time, the, the uh, university beauty parlor was here in this location. So, um, oh, and his name escapes me. I was thinking about it this morning as I was driving in. Don't forget his name. Paul Dunsmore. Paul Dunsmore had the university newsstand. And when the beauty parlor moved out, Paul Dunsmore said, you know what? I'm going to open a diner. So he went in to open a diner in 1953. When they took out the beauty salon chairs, one of them left a big impression on the floor. And his, he was painting the walls. He just painted in that circle. And the white spot was born, 1953. That's where the beauty salon chair sat, when it was a beauty salon. And they're, first, they're known for the Gus Burger, purportedly uh, named after a university f physician who would order it for extra protein, a hamburger with an egg. Um, but when they opened in 1953, they were actually famous for hot dogs with cheese and bacon on top. <laughs> so why don't we end it there? Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Let me very quickly, as I wrap up, I want to show you my uh, most prized possession. I recently uh, found an amazing local artist and commissioned him to do this. And I very, very proudly own the original. Uh, in, in my mind, this, there's never been a better painting of the corner. Uh, it's absolutely beautiful. And um, the artist is actually here, Bill Fenn. Bill, stand up and take some applause. This is just beautiful. Isn't that great? And he's told me he's doing prints. Are you going to do prints of that? Yeah. Yeah. So what's your website? He's got cards. <laughs> so if you want that. We're actually meeting next week. Um, he's going to do another one of uh, sort of the Virginian Mensers area. Um, so uh, he's at work on the corner now. He's done a bunch of work downtown, but he's at work on the corner. So uh, y'all have a wonderful, wonderful game day. Were there any, um, yeah, I'm sorry. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Stephen Diane Kukos built this in 1972 and opened the mousetrap was the first business there on the ground floor. Um, that's right. Now it's been, a, it's been a string of businesses since then. Um, but yeah, that was the mousetrap. And before that, when they built that, there was a, a gas station. Abernathy's Texaco was on the corner there for many years. Yeah. Right across the street from that was Pages Florist and Greenhouse for gosh, over 100 years before they built the 14th Street, what's known as the 14th Street Mall with St. Martin's at the corner, which cele just celebrated 24 years, by the way. Um, and that replaced Pages, um, which um, he turned out to have been a member of the Seven Society, which um, not many people knew. He was responsible for doing all the corsages uh, for dances and all the, um, the displays at the funerals of Seven Society members. Yeah, anybody else? Yes, sir. Right. How many, people, how many active members do you think are in the Seventh Society at one time? The question was how many active members do I think there are in the Seventh Society at one time or currently? Right. I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. And I'm not so sure I would say if I knew. <laughs>
could I, 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 don't, I don't know, and I don't know who you would ask. Yeah. I actually really like and respect the, the anonymity. And I've, in all my years of research, I never made any effort to unmask or... I like it. You know, I, I think it's fantastic. So, yeah. Yes, sir. Cafe Europa opened in 1993. I hope this answers your question. This building was built in 1960. Before that, the University Diner opened in 1932, home of the corner's most famous dessert item, the Grills With. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so funny when they tell the story. Um, I interviewed, uh, what's his name? Alma Shiflet's son, and his first name escapes me. Lee Shiflett, that's right. And he said, it was just sort of happened. We would sort of, but it, he said, you know, we didn't really plan. We're going to create this amazing dessert item. But it just sort of happened, and uh, it really caught on. They were really nice people, by the way. They were great people, absolutely. And it's my understanding that they lent a lot of money. Like Mincers, they had a lot of money. They had no problem lending money to students. And a cash box on Mincers' counter, yeah. Johnson's, they tore down in 1937 to open the University Theater, which closed in 1990. It was still open when I got here, and now it's home of Cavalier Tan, <laughs> which I have to admit, there's, some real, there's a real touch of historic irony there, because that was the home of the, um, the first civil rights march, the first significant civil rights march in the history of the university community. Uh, the first graduate student in the College of Arts and Sciences, Virginia Thornton, went out there one day with some white and black students and faculty members with the sign, I am an American, a Virginian, admit me. They said that we don't have a balcony, so we can't admit you, because there's no way to have separate seating, so you can't come in. Um, this was in 1961. It took almost 10 years for the successful um, uh, integration of the corner, and it sort, of, um, it sort of evolved. I write about it in my book. It just, it just didn't happen overnight. It sort of evolved as more and more people got used to the idea that this is just going to happen. Um, so I hope that answers your question. University Diner and the... Yeah, how about that? That was nice. <laughs> yes, sir. Jefferson apparently consulted Latrobe on the, uh, the actual uh, grounds, but the rotunda itself. Now, which of Palladio's uh, villas do you think most influenced them? Or it was the Pantheon. Right. Not a villa. The villas um, gave inspiration for the, each of the unique... Um, uh, Pavilions, but the Pantheon inspired the uh, rotunda, which was the um, the library. Yeah, there were science labs in there, and it was actually I was just thinking it was actually the first uh, gym they used to do um, martial arts there. You know, with canes, learning to fight with canes, and it was actually the first chapel. They held chapel services there too. Jefferson did not want the chapel built on the grounds. He did not want a member of the clergy employed by the university. Um, shortly after he died. The conservatives in Virginia rushed in and made that happen. Um, and so there was a chapel built in, in 1885, but there was a member of the clergy on staff there beginning in the 1830s. Yes, sir? I was going to ask you how old the chapel was. 1885. So when we saw the picture of the gentleman ringing the bell, that was, the, was that bell that he was ringing in the chapel? It was in the rotunda. In the rotunda. And later moved to the chapel and later turned into electronic music. <laughs> Yeah, the Carillion and then, and then electronically. What's so great about the chapel, if you look where it is, and, and this is not original to me, but when you look where it is, it, it's, it's, uh, the rotunda sits in the middle, the home of, uh, of the pursuit of knowledge. 
uh, and on the on one side is the um, uh, the uh, the Natural History Museum, Natural Science Museum, Brooks Hall, where I studied as a graduate student. Home now of the anthropology department has some art labs in there. But of course, that was a museum, and celebrated natural science, celebrated science. On the opposite side of the rotunda is the chapel, and our cultural groundings in in uh, in faith. Uh, and it's I think it's a nice symbolic vision of balance there. Anybody else? Yes, sir. The oldest business presently operating on the UVA corner. It's the Virginian, but if under the same name or family, Mincers. Right, the Virginian definitely not the same ownership. Bill Dudley worked there, as a matter of fact. By the way, not many people know that he worked there. Um, the Virginian's the oldest business. It's the oldest restaurant in Central Virginia. Uh, don't let Mickey Tavern fool you. <laughs> and you all know, by the way, that Mickey Tavern was not there originally, right? It's from Earliesville. They picked it up and moved it to reach more tourists. <laughs> uh, it would be the Virginian and then Mincers, and I'm sort of scanning the corner in my mind. Uh, Anderson Brothers was, was, I think, the longest. There was a bookstore in that location for 112 years. Anderson, yeah, it's going to be a CVS. Like it or not. Yes, ma'am. When did UVA become co-ed? <clears throat> there were women around grounds in the 19th century. Um, townies, uh, daughters of faculty members, they were there. I mean, there were always women in the community. They attended some classes in the 19th century. But really, um, you see the nursing school, the turn of the 20th century. Uh, you start to see nursing classes. Graduate school, uh, school of education in, 19, in the 20s. Um, and um, I actually interviewed one of the very first women to go to the university and, um, in the 1920s. And she said, you know, they, they told us we had to sign up in the education department. She said, but when I got there, I could take any class I wanted. There wasn't, you can't take that class. So she said, I think that was just a front because I took anything I wanted to. And she said, I never had a problem with anybody. And as a matter of fact, she said, when I would walk home to my uh, boarding house, Miss Speed's boarding house up Rugby Road, she said, uh, shortly before any tests, a little group of students, of boys, would follow her back to her boarding house and she would walk up on the steps of her boarding house and turn around, and they would ask her for her notes, to borrow her notes before any test. <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, really in the face of um, some serious litigation, 1969, 1970, 1971, that's when you started to see women admitted into the College of Arts and Sciences. And the fear all along was, it'll kill the honor system, and the grades will plummet. I think you could argue the opposite on both, successfully. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. I have a It's a great question, the, the, the question about the jurisdiction of university property. Um, the university area was part of the county until 1916. That's when it officially became part of the city. And as part of the deal for annexing that, they said we won't annex the actual university um, itself, the university proper. Um, that will still be in the county. And the concern was that there might be some uh, bad, there might be problems with the city police and the students. So if you just get them back, on the grounds, 
They go into the county, and I don't have to worry about them. So as long as you keep all that <laughs> on grounds, they're not in the city, and the police officers really don't have to worry about them. That's a great question that I do not know the answer to. <laughs> Who paints the orange V's on the streets? You, you mean? Yeah, I have no idea. You know, the kids of graduate students, I think, go to county schools that, that live in the University of Alabama. Interesting. I, I think that's true, right up near Okay, U-Hall. interesting. Yes, sir. I do know Charlottesville gladly paints the V's at city expense, gladly paints the V's on the streets. Willingly. Willing, no, not only yeah. willingly, but gladly. Right, right. Because the football and the university brings so much lolly to Charlottesville. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I agree with that. So the city says, you want some V's? <laughs> what color would you like? Right. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, sir. Hey. You're plugged in. There's some talk and there's some rumor, and I don't think anything is official, but uh, a local developer has been buying up some of the businesses on the corner. I think owns the Eljo's building, which is Ragged Mountain Running Shop now, which, by the way, that was the location of Mrs. Page's boarding house. Uh, and Mincers, where Mincers is, that was built in their front yard. Um, used to be a parking lot. Now it's that building on Ellywood Avenue. I think he bought that and also the old university cafeteria building. And the theory is that you might see a big L-shaped building that faces on both Ellywood Avenue and University Avenue. That's the theory. But as far as I know, that's a protected historic district. It's going to be pretty difficult to do anything major in that area, which personally I, I think is fantastic. Um, but uh, we'll see how it, how it plays out. And oh, Chancellor Building as well, down near the railroad tracks, the Chancellor Building as well. Uh, which I think are all historic properties protected under a, a local ordinance. So it would all have to go before the Board of Architectural Review. I don't think they own, they own Mincer Zones, that building. Yeah. Yes, sir. I don't know specifically the answer to that, but I do know that the, there, there is a separate historic corner district recognized by the city. Perhaps so. Yeah, I don't know. Thank you. Thank you all so much. <laughs>